The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We talk about those things that are crucial to the dignity of the human person. Catholic perspective on that, the dignity of work, the dignity of especially individuals who are poor, don't have some of the material resources that others have and how that has to have a priority for us. Not that people live lives of luxury, but people have the basics of food and shelter. And one of the basics is also having a job that that enhances the dignity of the human person and family is critically important. How families support each other. And families are the first place where human beings learn about what it means to be human, what it means to be loved. And we know sometimes the devastation when in certain situations, families don't provide love. We know how detrimental that can be to the growth of the child and it oftentimes has very, very negative impact for years and years and years. And if it's tried to be remedied, it takes a lot of work to do that. So those things which enhance, support the, the family are very, very critically important. And one of the other things that is important to us is the participation in civic life. And God knows these days we have such problems because there is a lack of civility in, in that. So it's a very, um, uh, so we look at all of those things through the perspective of our Catholic, Catholic teaching. And so um, <clears throat> in our show this week, we are delighted to have as our guest, um, Desmond Lockman, who is who has a doctorate in economics from Cambridge University. He is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And we're going to speak about a number of different issues, but we're going to talk a little bit about how we're doing coming out of the, you know, pandemic and what are the prospects for kind of where we're going in terms of, of inflation and things of, of that um, area. So, um, Thank you so much, uh, Desmond Lockman, for joining us on Just Love. My pleasure, and thank you for inviting me. Oh, I guess <clears throat> I guess I have to ask, given that I hear your accent, um, it is amazing to me um, on this side of the pond the incredible publicity and media attention to uh, Queen Elizabeth's passing. Yeah, I'm actually not from the United Kingdom, as you might have thought, but ah. my brother was born in South Africa. Okay. So, you know, that's where the British accent comes from. Okay. So, but let me, so again, I was a little bit surprised at this. So let me ask you a follow-up question. Um, the I was intrigued yesterday when the new prime minister talked about the Commonwealth still having more than 50 members. Um, I was a little surprised at that when she said that. Um, 
that's a large number. Yeah, that is certainly the case, you know, that that is a continuation of the British Empire, you know, that that came to an end at the end of the Second World War. But many countries decided that they wanted to maintain relationship with the United Kingdom. And it was no small measure due to the Queen's personality and the Queen's example of dedication to work that she really was respected and actually quite loved in much of the Commonwealth. So was South Africa a Commonwealth nation? South Africa was a Commonwealth nation until 1960, in which, at which time they declared uh, independence and they became you know, a country right. that uh, had a president and that didn't have the Queen of England as its head of government. Ah. You know, again, I was surprised when I heard the prime minister yesterday that her claim was that in these 50 some odd Commonwealth nations reside one third of the world's population. Well, if one includes India, you're already talking about a billion people. Exactly. uh, Plus, you know, so uh, that is... uh, uh, I imagine that it's really places like India and Pakistan that are very densely populated yeah. that account for a large part of that number. So anyway, so thank you for for kind of engaging me, even though uh, your accent uh, is South African, but you certainly knew more than I did. So that's wow. that is good. So let's talk. Let's talk economics in this day. Let me let me let you take the lead. So in this time, what's what's the most important thing on your mind with regard to the economy? Well, like everybody else, I'm highly concerned about inflation and I'm highly concerned that we've allowed ourselves to get into this position where inflation is now running at a 40 year high. And this is impacting many people that what they're finding is they can't make ends meet, that the wages aren't keeping up with the rate at which prices are increasing. So, you know, for instance, what we saw is we saw gasoline prices go to $5 a gallon. We saw food prices really shoot up. And that is impacting most severely people at the lower end of the income scale because those people spend most of the, a lot more of their money on food and gas and basic necessities than uh, do people who are well off. So this is, inflation has been called the cruelest tax because it falls mainly, most heavily on those least able to defend themselves from it. So inflation is really our key problem. And we're now really having to fight with that. And the question now is whether we can bring the inflation down without causing the economy to go into a recession, you know, which would mean a lot of people would be losing their jobs. So I think I've heard recently that um, people are now arguing about what it means to be in a recession. Like, what are the 
the the things you look at. It, did, have I picked that up correct in the media? Yeah, that's well. The popular idea of a recession is if the economy contracts in two consecutive quarters, and that's really what our economy has done. That the first quarter and the second quarter of this year, we registered negative growth. That means that we're producing less than we were in 2021. So that is the popular definition of a recession. The technical definition is what the National Bureau of Economic Research declares to be a recession, and they're looking at a broader range of issues. So, so far, one of the curiosities of this particular economic episode is that even though output looks like it's declining, the job market has remained very strong up to now. So what we've got is we've got a situation where there are more job openings than there are people who are unemployed. So in fact, we've got 11 million job openings at a time that there's 6 million people without work. So that indicates that the labor market is very strong And the administration is making the argument with some justification that because you've got a strong labor market of this sort, one really can't say that we're yet in a recession. That doesn't mean to say that we're not headed towards a recession. But right now, uh, you could plausibly argue that the economy is not yet in a recession. So let me ask you a, a question which I've heard people say a little bit. When you say there are um, only 6 million people, I think you said, I don't want to put words in your mouth, unemployed or something like that, or um, because I'm going to ask you a little bit of a technical question, um, because don't we measure the number of unemployment by unemployment claims and those seeking work? Yeah, that's right, that there are People could be not seeking work or they've dropped out of the labor force. So that's only one statistic. One's really got to look at a whole range of statistics. But the point that the administration would make is that unemployment, the rate of unemployment today is something like 3.6%, which is very close to a 50-year low. And what we're now seeing is we're seeing people coming back into the labor force. So the labor market does look to be strong, but you're right in saying that there are a lot of people who've been discouraged, there are a lot of people who've retired, that the 6 million might be understating those who'd really want to get uh, work. The 6 million is only those who are actively seeking uh, work. Okay. So... Since you said we might be heading to a recession, um, which could be very painful, um, what do we got to do about it? And who's got to do it? Well, right now, who is carrying the ball is the Federal Reserve. And it's somewhat ironic because the Federal Reserve played a big part in getting us into this mess that what they did in 2021 was at a time that the economy was recovering and that we were receiving a very strong budget stimulus, that a lot of money was being spent 
and it looked like the economy was overheating, they kept interest rates too low for too long and let inflation get underway. So now what they're realizing is that one can't let inflation get out of hand because that would really be very painful, socially disruptive. Eventually, when they'd have to slam on the brakes with inflation higher, you'd have a harder landing. So what the Fed is trying to do right now is to raise interest rates to bring the economy to a slower rate of growth, to let some sort of slack develop in the labor market. And they're hoping that that will be sufficient to get the inflation down to the 2% target. We're currently running inflation at around about 8.5%. They're hoping that this way they can get what they call a soft economic landing without the economy actually going into a recession. Uh, But most economists think that the chances of that occurring are rather slight. They've let the inflation get too high. Now they're slamming on the brakes very hard, you know, which generally results in a recession, you know, which we could see sometime early next year, the middle of next year. We're speaking with Dr. Desmond Lachman, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And we're talking a little bit about um, inflation and, and, and recessions and what's going on in the world. Because, again, as um, as uh, Dr. Lachman mentioned before, that, you know, inflation is sometimes referred to as a very cruel tax that impacts the poor more than others. So we're kind of trying to figure out uh, with Dr. Lachman what's going on and what maybe are some things that would be um, advisable. Dr. Lachman, do a little bit of translating for me and for our listeners, okay? Here's the translation. So if we care, if we look, all of a sudden, the Federal Reserve um, says we're raising interest rates by 50 basis points, which is, I think it's a half a percentage point, right? Correct. That's about what I know about a con. I can translate basis points into percentage. That's about the extent of what I know. But so anyway, so translate this for me. So how how does that have an impact on, I mean, if I go to buy gas, how does them raising the interest rates a half a percentage point, how does that affect my gas prices, my food prices? Yeah, that's really a very good question. If first may just make the point that they're raising interest rates now by 75 basis points increments. They haven't done that in something like 30 years. So this is very aggressive monetary policy. And you're right to point out that some prices are beyond the control of the Federal Reserve. So a lot of the some part of the problem is that Russia has engaged in a war with Ukraine that what that is doing is it's disrupting oil supply, that they're now not get, giving the energy that we had before. And food production, Ukraine and Russia used to be the breadbasket, certainly of Europe. They exported a lot of the stuff. So that sent prices high. So the Federal Reserve, those prices, the Federal Reserve cannot do much about. What the Federal Reserve is trying to do 
is to get the rest of the prices back in control because what we've got is we've got wages growing up by something like five and a half percent automobile prices going through the roof the fed is trying to restrain demand when they raise interest rates a good example would be people buying houses so the housing market last year was on fire prices of houses were increasing by something like 20 percent housing was becoming totally unaffordable now by raising interest rates and by telling people that they're going to continue on that path, what we've seen is we've seen mortgage rates have doubled from around about 3% to 6%. So what that means is people can no longer afford to buy houses. That brings down the price of houses and that trickles through the economy. Basically, what they're trying to do is put the brake on demand to get the economy to be less overheated than it is right now. And they're trying to do this in a way that is really very difficult just to get the right amount of right. monetary policy restraints. You know, the chances of their succeeding uh, are fairly limited. One's really just got to hope that they manage to just do the right amount of tightening without pushing us into a recession. So, um Dr. Lachman, let me do a little bit of, a, of kind of translating what you said. And that was a really good explanation because I, I think I remember 40 million years ago from my introductory economics course in, in, um, in college that, you know, supply and demand, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and if I think if there's less if things are higher priced, there will naturally be, if the market's working, there will be less demand for them. I mean, that's a basic thing that we still believe is true. Yeah, that's certainly, we do believe that that's true. But what the Fed is trying to do is to bring the prices down by reducing demand. So, what we've got now is a situation where there's too much demand and too little supply. So right. what the Fed is trying to do by raising interest rates is they're trying to bring demand back more in line with the amount of supply that the economy can provide. So let me let me pursue that a little bit. I hear what you're saying, and it seems clear to me, but aren't they doing it by increasing prices? No, that's well. They're well, increasing. They're increasing interest rates. Well, but hold on, hold on. Um, and if I want to buy a house, the cost of me buying a house is how much the house costs plus the interest rate on my mortgage. Yeah, in in that sense, they're making it more expensive right, exactly. for you to buy that house. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to bring down the price of houses. And what they're trying to do is to slow the amount of construction, you know, that they're trying to cool the economy. And that's part of it, that when you're producing less houses, then yeah. people will require less uh, so, appliances and so on. And, and again, please, Dr. Lachman, put up with my simplicity for a moment. But there's going to be less houses built because the builder it's going to cost him more to borrow the money he needs to build that house 
and to hold it on his books before he sells it to somebody. Correct. That's the what the Fed is doing isn't without long run costs. Right. But they've got themselves into a situation where they don't really have alternatives. You know, they have made a mess by allowing inflation to occur. And, you know, the truth of the matter is that to bring inflation back under control, which everybody agrees that the economy functions best when people don't worry about inflation, when it's really not an issue. But in order to get back to that situation, it isn't going to be painless. Right. So let me ask you another another question. We talk about interest rates. Do the um, does the Fed have any other quivers? Um, any any other arrows in its quiver? Well, they are interest related. So the one thing you know what the Fed is doing is two things: they're raising interest rates, but they also reducing the size of their balance sheet. So what that means is last year. What they were doing is they were buying $120 billion of bonds each month. This is quantitative easing. And what that was doing is it was causing the stock market to boom. It was causing the house prices to go up very much. Now what they're doing is they're doing exactly the opposite. Instead of putting liquidity in the market by buying these bonds, Now what they're doing is when these bonds become due, they're asking to be repaid. So they're taking money out of the system that way. So they're working with two instruments in a way that is very aggressive. You know, we haven't seen interest rate increases at this pace before, and we haven't seen withdrawal of liquidity at this pace before. So this is a very bold experiment that we have to hope ends well. but history would tell you that uh, this is not likely to be the case. So Dr. Lachman, again, translate that again for me and my listeners. Um, does liquidity mean dollars and cash? Absolutely. That okay. you know, people, you know, if I would put it in a way that isn't technical and that could be more understood is last year, the Fed was printing money. Okay. This year, what they're doing is they're destroying money. You know, okay. so they're taking money out of the system. Um, so, and the bonds that they're selling and buying are they just corporate bonds, government bonds? No, 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 they- no, no. They're uh, they're U.S. mainly U.S. Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. Okay. So okay. they restrict themselves to those, but they've bought in huge quantities, you know, that uh, it's mind boggling that their balance sheet now is around about $9 trillion that they've been expanding. And this was in reaction to COVID, you know, so it's understandable what they did in 2020, that things were falling apart, the economy could have gone into a depression. So they really came out with their guns blazing. That was the right thing to do. What the mistake was, is once that the crisis had dissipated, then they should have withdrawn. They didn't withdraw. They kind of kept the party going. And, you know, there's an old saying that what the Fed is supposed to do is to take the punch bowl away when the party gets going. And people are criticizing the Fed for spiking the punch bowl when the party was getting out of hand. Well, 
to me, that is a, a wonderful analogy, which is easily understood. And isn't the political challenge that, that the Fed or the party giver faces is that sometimes the people at the party don't want you to take the punch bowl away. But that's exactly the problem, is that the problem is that when the party is going, everybody is having a good time. And it's a question that when people have the hangover, you know, that's not so pleasant. So we've gone (laughs) through the party stage. And now, uh, you know, we should know that by having behaved irresponsibly, uh, we're not going to get away without uh, paying some price. So where, again, one of the things we like to do with smart guests on our show is we kind of ask them to be the czar. So right now, you're the head of the, the Fed, the Federal Reserve, and you got in your back pockets the votes of everybody else. What does the Fed do at its next meeting? Well, the Fed has to stick to this course. I fear, though, that the Fed is being too aggressive, okay. that the Fed is going to push us into a, a very deep recession, you know, by not waiting. You know, Because one of the things with monetary policy is that when you do raise the interest rates, you don't expect to get an immediate result. You have to wait some time to see yeah. what's occurring. I think that what they're now in a situation is much in the same way as last year, they were too slow to tighten policy. Now they're too keen to tighten policy. Okay. You know, All so right. we really need to get somewhere in the middle. All right. And what would you do on the the bond side? Would you buy or sell? Uh, I would be careful. You know that I want to reduce the bond holding, but not at this kind of pace. You know, because what is occurring is the stock market is in really bad shape. And what the Fed is doing is it's pulling liquidity out at a very rapid rate. So I'm not sure that this is the best advised policy, you know, that if they might, instead of doing $95 billion a month, they should be doing $30, $40 billion a month and see what happens. So listen, this is kind of a fun question, which betrays my ignorance, okay? So um, <clears throat> so the, the bond comes due, Okay. So let's say $10 million of the bonds, so we can, our listeners can understand this. $10 million of the bonds come due. They don't turn them over, but they get the cash for them, right? Correct. So what do they do with the cash? Well, the cash, uh, the Treasury would now be repaying the bond. Right. And the Federal Reserve's balance sheet would be going down and the money supply would be going down. That's the way in which you get a better control of uh, the money supply. You know, so, so what the idea pardon is pardon me a little, pardon me a little human. So does does the chair of the Fed take the $10 million, put it under his bed, or does he put it in a bank account? What's he do with the cash? Well, he's just running down his uh balance sheets, you know. So instead of uh uh, extending credits to the government now he's okay. getting them to repay him so okay. there's less there's less federal reserve money floating around okay but it it, it doesn't go any place it's he's basically he's taking it out of the system but but in my, i get that but where is he putting it uh he, 
he's not putting that beforehand there was something that was created. Right. Now he's destroying it. You know, so it's not oh. so okay. it's not uh you know, that the banks aren't as flush with liquidity as they were before, so they're right. not lending as much. Okay. You know, that is part of the strategy. Got it. Okay. All right. Hey, Dr. Lackman, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm, I, you were so patient with my simplistic questions, and I, I hope that helped our listeners to understand a little bit more. Well, it, it was my pleasure talking to you, and I should just mention that I had a professor who told me that there were never stupid questions. There were only stupid answers. Uh, well, you gave none of them. Yours were right on target. So thank you so much for being, being with us on Just Love. My pleasure. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love, our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. You know, we do talk about very broad issues here. We just talked about uh, inflation and the economy and recession. And, you know, sometimes maybe some of our listeners saying, well, why did you bother talking about that? Well, we bothered talking about that because 
one of the key points of our Catholic perspective on the world is that the economy is not just about, quote unquote, making money, which it's not about that, but it's also in the way it's structured to about fairness. It's about providing for the broadest group of individuals so that people can have the basic necessities. I mean, we believe that there is that human dignity uh, merits uh, decent housing. It merits sufficient food. It merits education uh, and a number of other things. And so part of our looking at the economy, as we did with uh, Dr. Lackman, was to kind of think about what are those things that would enhance human dignity. And one of the items we talked about is how inflation takes an incredibly high toll on the poor because the the basic necessities go up. Salaries don't necessarily go up. They're using most of their income for that and it's harder to make ends meet. So that's one of the reasons why we talk about the economy, which kind of can seem to be pretty esoteric and maybe even far afield from kind of religion and spirituality. But when we look at where human beings live, they live in countries and neighborhoods and worlds that are economic actors and how that is established does impact human dignity. And so uh, I'm glad that that Dr. Lackman did share that with us. We're now going to talk about a topic which is particularly also challenging and more focused on religion and about what's going on in the world of religion and tolerance and violence. And so I'm delighted that Professor Paul Marshall of Baylor University, he is an author, the Wilson Professor of Religious Freedom, has is joining us on Just Love today. Professor Marshall, thank you for joining us. Martin Sullivan, thank you very much for having me. Oh, boy. Tom, you've gotten us two people who have this funny way of speaking English. They don't speak it with our American accent. They use something else. So, Dr. Marshall, thank you for being with us. So, Tom, where would you grow up? Um, I grew up in Liverpool, England. I was at school with George Harrison and Paul McCartney. Ah, and you just chose the more famous route. Yeah, I I did indeed. So so, uh, interesting. So let me ask you this. I I asked uh, previously, but I am just really kind of really taken taken aback uh, positively by all of the media attention to the death of Queen Elizabeth. Are uh-huh. you surprised by it at all or not? Uh, no, not really. Um, the Maybe, I mean, in England, uh, this would be expected. Um, so wall-to-wall coverage, even, you know, the railway workers were due to go on strike and they have ceased that out of respect, similarly for the nurses. So, you know, even strikes are on hold. Um, a little surprised about the United States, but uh, I think part of that is um, our politics is so d- divisive right now. And then you see uh, Queen in England, a sort of unifying figure over there who could be above, to some degree, above politics. And so that and she's done very well for uh, 70 years and a very outspoken Christian. So um uh, yeah, I think it's fitting that there, there's all this attention. Yeah, and you know, I think I share with you 
why there is such attention in the United States. It gives us a little pause from yeah. being at each other's throat. We can kind of, you know, and so it is kind of a, I think it's a little bit of a reprieve and a, and, you know, maybe look that there is a different way of organizing heads of state and, and heads of uh, government. And, um, you know, maybe it's not, a, not as bad as some people would like to portray it. Yeah, I mean, in, in principle, I, I would like to separate the head of state and the head of government. Uh, you know, otherwise you get the problem, which I think we have, that if you, you know, attack, say, the president, you know, there's the idea you're attacking American because everything is focused on that one point. Yeah. And um, so, but yeah. we, we have the arrangements we have. Yeah, and I haven't thought about it that way, but I think that that is, um, you know, a little bit of, of true. I mean, from my rational point of view, um, somebody who works very closely with, with me here uh, was born in in London has been in the United States for a number of years. And we kind of kid back and forth, like the queen has to give her consent or something to um, to different things. I mean, I think in, you know, meeting the prime minister, or I think even they use the word appoint the prime minister. Don't yes. They? Yeah. In, in theory, she does. Yeah. I mean, it, she's yeah. not going to turn around and say, no, I don't like you. I'm not appointing you. Yeah. I know. But to me, Coming from an American perspective, I would say, um, well, why not? If she doesn't like the prime minister, she should exercise her right not to do it. Now, I know it doesn't work that way, but the word appoint kind of offends me. <laughs> but I, I get it. Yeah. One other note on that, by the way, um, places where they do appoint and have expressed their views uh, well, not the Queen, but the Prime Minister. But the Queen is uh, officially appoints uh, the bishops right. and so on. And certain people in uh, academic positions as well. Ah. Um, so she will uh, appoint the ones the Prime Minister right. uh, would, would tell her to um, or request that she do so. Yeah. Uh, but Prime Ministers have, have weighed in with their own personal views on you know, they get a recommendation from the, the church as to who should be a bishop. Right. And both Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher would say, no, oh. don't want that person. Oh. Find another one. So. That's interesting. Um, that's interesting. So anyway, thank you. Thank you for allowing uh, me to have a little conversation about something yep. I'm not terribly familiar with, but have been intrigued by. So, So tell us right now, in the in the area of kind of religious freedom and religious liberty around the world, what's the thing that is most on your mind of most concern to you? Uh, probably at the moment, Nigeria. Okay. Um, for two reasons, what is happening there is so horrendous and so ignored. Right. The uh, what you have in Nigeria is um, several overlapping things. Um, one is increased radicalization among some of the Muslims in the north. In the, the way the country is divided, the north is majority Muslim, the south majority Christian, and the middle belt is is split. But now uh, ISIS, the Islamic State affiliated groups, are operating there. 
uh, Al-Qaeda uh, groups operating there, and then this sort of um, other radical militias, and then uh, people um, who are simply bandits, and sometimes those categories overlap. Uh, but they have been uh, killing people. Um, there'd be a report almost um, every week. Um, a church in Lagos in the southwest, way out of this, this area, um, 41 people were shot. ISIS gunmen came into the church. And the death toll, uh, the number of Christians killed um, is in the thousands right now. Uh, maybe in the tens of thousands. It's very hard to get uh, explicit acts, but there's continual um, attacks on uh, Christians and some Muslims too. And you might remember several years ago, the kidnapping of those schoolgirls, 250 schoolgirls. And uh, kidnapping um, still goes on. Uh, If it's by ISIS, they also try to forcibly convert them. In other cases, it's bandits who simply want money, send them back. Uh, But um, it's almost anarchy in the northern areas. Uh, The government um, isn't doing anything. One of the attacks was using a helicopter gunship. Uh, Probably they stole it from or bought it from, from the army. But the Nigerian government is doing very little. And um, the United States, to its shame, a little background, if you will. Uh, The U.S. has a special United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. Right. And it reports on religious freedom around the world and suggests that certain countries be designated as countries of particular concern, which Nigeria has has been for several years now because because of this death toll and the ongoing killings. This year, the State Department removed Nigeria from a country of particular concern and has given no grounds or justification for that. But if any any country is a country we need to be concerned about it, it is Nigeria and pay attention to what what is happening now. So, um, Professor Marshall, just your own speculation. Why? It doesn't seem to make any sense. the um, I can have a suspicious mind um, about governments, and I cannot prove any connection. Right. Um, but uh, Nigeria did place a large order um, for armaments, including, I think, helicopters with the United States earlier this year. Okay. Uh, where I, if yeah. you ask me, show me, show me there's a connection. I said, I can't do that. Uh, but what other reason would you give to take one of the most horrendous places in the world in terms of religiously inspired violence and death and weekly attacks on churches to lift it off your list of uh, countries of particular concern? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly strikes me as being, well, I mean, again, um, you know, what do they say for the sake of a, for the sake of, of a horse or say the kingdom was lost. I mean, it seems to me for hell for helicopters. I mean, I I get it, but that doesn't seem to me to be a super geopolitical reason for removing it. No, it isn't. If, you know, if this is the case, the argument would be, um, I don't know, 
they'll buy them from the if they don't buy them from us, they'll buy them from the Russians. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they, we could sell them the, the helicopters and still keep them on the list. Yeah. <laughs> well, mean, they, the idea would be that uh, Nigeria would say you got to take us off that list, as otherwise the country. Okay, could be. So, so talk to me a little bit about the government of Nigeria. Is it just ineffective? Is it hostile? Is it corrupt? Why is it not doing anything? I think you got the three major reasons right there. Okay, it's ineffective, hostile, and corrupt. Okay. Um, the The president is a, a Muslim, which has often been the case in Nigeria, and they've had Christian presidents too. Usually they try to alternate. And if you have a Muslim president, you make sure the vice president's a Christian and so forth. Uh, but he's also a member of the Fulani tribe. Okay. And that has been, it's amongst the Fulani that you get the most radical uh, type of Muslims, the majority Hausa, People who live in the north are some radicals there, but less so. So he's from uh, the sort of most militantly Islamist tribe up there. And the question is, does he in fact support what's going on? Um, or are they simply um, ineffective? You know, it's a very weak government. Um, the military is often corrupt, uh, uh, probably some of the uh, radical terrorist groups uh, buy the arms off the military. Uh, So there's bribery there. So um, I think it's a combination of, of all of those, but they have been um, exceedingly passive. They just don't seem to do anything at all. So when a situation like this arises, as it does in a number of different situations, are there any, Remedy is not the right word, but there are are there things that the international community can do, um, the United Nations, or is, are there things the United States can do uh, bilaterally? Well, you know, if, if if we put you in charge of quote unquote solving this problem or at least making it better, what would you do? Uh, firstly, to sort of publicize it. Uh, I won't go into all, all the details, but right. I think the U.S. ambassador to Nigeria has been um, very ineffective okay. on this. She keeps denying the religious element. And right. uh, there's obviously more than religion going on. Uh, people want money and other things. Um, but the religious elements there. I think a key element is uh, training the Nigerian military. Uh, for two reasons. One is much of it is corrupt. So uh, we want to weed out that corruption. Which And secondly, so that it can effectively fight against these groups who are sort of well-armed. They're, a regular police force isn't going to be able to do that. Um, the U.S. Africa Command, which was formed, I think, a good move a couple of years ago, a principal, there aren't many soldiers in it. Principally, doing have been doing training in, in places like um, Burkina Faso, uh, Mali, and so forth, to the north of Nigeria, the southern part of the Sahara Desert, and uh, that that has been, I think, uh, effective. Uh, the French have also been doing that. 
But my focus would be on enhancing security and at two levels. One is reforming the military and train so they will actually fight and also not be so corrupt. Okay. Thank, thank you for, for that. Um, your overall perspective are what's the trend line in terms of religious violence across the globe? Up, down, decreasing, increasing, steady? Uh, it's uh, religious violence is increasing generally. Um, the uh, that's affected well you you see that with china particularly with the the uyghurs with their imprisonment mm-hmm. and fine the ongoing violence of holding basically a, over a million people as prisoners so that's one of the major ones um with um so a lot of religious violence in india uh, usually uh, small scale attacks, beating up attacks on on churches or whatever, and it varies from place to place. But um, in many places, the government too um, does not uh, effectively punish people who do this or effectively uh, protect people. So that's um, ongoing. I think repression in Iran is increasing. Um, there have been uh, more religious-related uh, um, arrests, uh, and we're seeing now uh, this. It's been down for a while, but uptick in violence in, in Somalia and Sudan. And then a major new thing is um, with Ukraine and Russia. Um, we think of that more in geopolitical terms, uh, but the Russian. Orthodox Church, to its shame, at least the leaders, I'm not saying all the clergy have done this, uh, has basically been supporting um, the Russian state. And it wants to reclaim um, Ukraine as a Russian Orthodox uh, territory, that it has jurisdiction there. So in the areas which... Um, the Russians have taken over in Ukraine. They've been basically seeking to eradicate um, all the church organizations except for the Russian Orthodox. Uh, when I say eradicate, I don't mean they're killing them all, but sort of taking away licenses, stopping them functioning. So this this hits the Catholic Church. It holds the Ukrainian, it also hits the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and, and it hits uh, Protestants. So there is also major, apart from everything else, there's also major religious repression uh, going on in Ukraine. And it's also increasing in Russia itself. Uh, well, Professor Marshall, I know I learned a lot and I know that our listeners have learned a whole lot. Thank you so much. And I hope that maybe sometime in the future, you'd be willing to come back and we could continue our conversation. Oh, I would love to. Thank you very much for having me. Great. Professor uh, Paul Marshall, who is who um, is the distinguished Wilson Professor of Religious Freedom at Baylor University. Thank you for joining us on Just Love today. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tom, uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and more compassionate. Tom, you traveled to Africa with uh, CRS probably, what, a decade or so ago? Yeah, it was uh, 10 years ago. Yep. Okay. And did the issue of religious uh, violence or religious persecution come up as part of your trip? You know, Monsieur, it, it, it. It didn't, uh, although um, we did go to some areas in Ethiopia uh, where where we close to Somalia, the Somaliland, that there was some concern because we were going over into areas uh, that could there could be prone to a little violence over in Ethiopia. But it wasn't as pronounced when I was there. I would be curious as to what the situation would be like today. Because he yeah. said that religious violence was up in Somalia. So that bleed, that would bleed over into Ethiopia. Yeah. I think one of the more interesting things that Professor Marshall mentioned was the situation between Russian Orthodox and Ukrainian Orthodox. I mean, to me, uh, I uh, it's hard for me to say much positive about that. The thing that I will say and I don't mean to be flippant about this, you know, any of us Christians, whether it be Roman Catholics, Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Christians, you know, we better spend a little bit more time thinking about Jesus (laughs) than about, you know, our institutional churches. And I think, you know, whenever we get uh, problematic, it's sometimes we lose that focus. Not that it's not, a, the community of faith is critically important, but Jesus comes first. And sometimes we we forget that. So thank you for being with us on Just Love. Thank you and just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.